I am at Queensland Ballet Studios and I'm in rehearsal gear because I have taught the principals this morning and then we had a photo shoot for Giselle, which is going on at Hotter in a week's time. And so I have an hour for lunch and I'll be back in the studio because we have a full run of Giselle this afternoon. Hi, I'm Katrina Blowers, and you're listening to Claiming Your Confidence, conversations where we pull back the curtain on what it takes to live your most confident life. I'm a journalist and TV newsreader, and of all the people I've interviewed over the years, I can tell you confidence isn't something any one of them was born with. So what separates those who refuse to let that self-doubt hold them back? Let's find out. So most of us have heard about the story of Mao's last dancer, Lee Shin Swen, but I doubt there are as many of you who know about his beautiful wife, Mary Lee. Mary grew up as Mary McKendry, one of eight kids in Rocky in central Queensland. Her story of wanting to be a prima ballerina as a little girl, then dancing on stage in London and all over the world, even training with the legendary Rudolf Nureyev, is actually the stuff of fairy tales. And so is the love story of how she met her future husband, both of them principal dancers. To find a, a really good partner is like needle in a haystack. So, But then when you mess around with it and have a relationship as well, it can make things very difficult in the studio. But it's actually the story of their little girl, Sophie, who was born profoundly deaf, that led Mary to sit down and write a book. And this is what we chat about today. I didn't want to tell my story without Sophie wanting to tell it and it was only when she said mum you have to write it because it's going to help so many people. The confidence of stepping on stage in front of royalty, the confidence it takes to raise a child with a huge challenge ahead of her in an era where medical advancements aren't what they are today and in the ultimate act of love to give up her own glittering career to be a champion for her. I'm so excited to announce that after 29 years away from the stage, Mary is making her dancing comeback. If you are lucky enough to be in Queensland, Australia, or just get on a plane and travel here, you can see her on stage at the Lyric Theatre on the 8th, 10th and 15th of June. I'm definitely going to go. So here is Mary Lee on claiming her confidence. Let's go way back in time to how you kind of accidentally fell into ballet at the age of eight and you describe it as you, you were asked to jump in the class and you'd done some jumping on the trampoline and you describe this feeling of joy as though you were flying. Yeah, I still remember that um, that moment and I was much bigger than the other little girls because some of them were like four and five because that was my beginning but I, I wasn't daunted and um, I don't know, the teacher, I think she, I think she was quite shocked by me as well, you know, with this wild hair and jumping up in the air. Uh, but, you know, I just wanted to be there from that moment on actually and it hasn't really wavered and I'm still in the studio. 
That's right. And it's become such a huge part of your life and, and your identity and, and who you've married and, and everything else. And it was almost by chance, really, if that other girl's mum hadn't rung up and suggested it, it you, you wouldn't have had this extraordinary life that you've had. And and the extraordinary teacher, because rarely do you get that. I mean, she was often, we talk about her now, she was very unassuming and no one knew um, really about her in um, in Australia, but she was actually a genius. And I sometimes I think, how on earth did she resource all that music? You know, they were reel-to-reel tapes and she introduced us to all these things. We had character dances, we had Scottish, we had Irish. We learnt about the world through her and her music and introducing stuff to us and it was hard to get um ta- the, you know they're all real to real tapes not even cassettes then <laughs> and the way you describe your childhood it's it's quite extraordinary your mum and dad sound amazing you were one of eight children growing up in Rockhampton and they didn't have a lot of money but they really did work to give you the opportunities that they could yeah they did well, my father, I think he was a little like me. I think he was passionate about architecture. And um, my mother was a pianist, so I think that's where I get my musical ability. But my mother was very genteel and very opposite to me, so the outlet for ballet was just um, amazing because she could barely keep me contained, really. I think I was a bit of a runaway. But, um, <laughs> but she she turned her life, you know, her career was raising her eight children and she got a lot of joy out of that, although I think it was hard work. <laughs> but um, she, she, you know, we all still talk to each other today and um, she raised eight, you know, beautiful, healthy children. So we were lucky. So you grew up in Rockhampton, which, you know, a great, great place, beautiful place, but, of course, then you didn't have social media, the internet. Um, Your worldview was really limited by what you could see. So how did you dream big from a young age? How did you know that there was so much more waiting for you? Well, I don't know that I really did know more. I think through the ballet because the... um, our ballet teachers, you know, we did Polish groups, we did Norwegian, we did so that we sort of, I learned there was a world. And my mother put me on a plane at three and I used to go to my grandmother each and every year. And once the um, I became very interested in the ballet, she would send me down when the Australian ballet was performing. And so I would see that world and that opened my eyes. And uh, for me... It was the only thing I I wanted to do. So I think even if, and my ballet teacher went to my parents, was about 15 and said that, you know, prepare to save a little bit. If she gets into the Royal Ballet School, she should go to London. And luckily my parents were like, well, that would be amazing. I mean, if it doesn't work, then nothing lost. She will learn something. So I was very lucky to have such you know amazing parents and they actually took me over was the first holiday they had without children (laughs) so was that when you were 16 yes 
Mm. So for you to, I mean, the, the age of 16, presumably you'd never been overseas before, neither had they. That must have been quite scary. Oh, it, it was, but I was just so excited. And it wasn't like we, I was just going for a trip. I was going for a purpose to the Royal Ballet School with all the ballerinas and everything. It was the epitome of where ballet, the best of is, was London and the Royal Ballet. So, oh, I just couldn't wait to get there, really. So I wasn't frightened. I was just really excited. Now, you, you mentioned in your book an experience that you had when you auditioned for the Royal Ballet Company and how you felt quite sort of like a fish out of water. You, were, you, you made the comment that you weren't the traditional English rose and that that's what they wanted. Uh, talk to us about that experience and why you didn't think you fitted in. In those days, I think they just had this um, view that, that, you know, pale skin and very soft, um, tiny little delicate flower was the person that was going to become the ballerina. But, in fact, you needed very, very strong, physically strong dancers and people to even survive the career. So I sort of knew I wasn't the type. I mean, I think I've always been very honest about myself and so I just was street smart and figured out from another little girl from the Royal Ballet, you know, that where else there was to audition and she said, oh, I'm going to London Festival Ballet to audition. I said, well, I'm coming too. And luckily for me, that's when Rudolf Nureyev was doing a new production of Romeo and Juliet and he needed more dancers. So I actually went into class and Rudolf Nureyev was in that class and that's how I got my job. I love how you describe that experience of how he came into the room and he had a real aura about him. And you you said to yourself in that moment, I can either be really nervous and intimidated by this or I can see this as exciting and as my opportunity to shine. I mean, how incredible from such a young age that you were able to get into that headspace. Well, I think I was very nervous, but, you know, I didn't. Uh, you know, I didn't want to be a failure and there were very few jobs on offer. So it was, you know, you were really sinking or swimming, really. You, you know, you had to make it happen. If I was going to get a job, they weren't falling off trees. And I was, you know, desperate to get a job and be paid. And, and they're like hen's teeth. So I wasn't going to give that opportunity up. And I really loved the um, ballet mistress that took the... Uh, the ballet class as well. She was like, she had wild, crazy hair and she was just fun. I just immediately took to her and I think she took to me. So, I, you know, I think without internet and all that other things, you have to read people's emotions and I think you can feel certain things when people give you confidence and I always try to do that now in my teaching. I really start with trying to give the dancer that feel that they're already confident before they've started. Mm, that's that's wonderful. Talk to us then about how you um, how you stepped into your own creativity. How you made yourself stand apart from the other dancers. What did you what did you tap into in yourself that you knew would elevate you from the rest? Um. 
look, I worked the hardest. I, I worked and I worked and I wanted it every day and I, I, I really, really worked. And once, and I think the one thing to do is to take little steps, little steps make big steps. So I think that um, that's, that's what I did, little steps every day, being very consistent, working very hard and the little steps made big steps. So from there, how did you get to be part of the Houston Ballet? Well, during my time in London, uh, Ben Stevenson, who was an international choreographer and a director of Houston Ballet, came to London and he, we performed three or four of his ballets and I developed a relationship with him because he loved my work and I never sort of thought of going there. But when I was about 25, I thought I'd go and have a look um, at his company because they were performing in London. In fact, Lee was performing. And um, I really liked the company and I loved uh, Ben Stevenson's ballets, big classical ballets. And then a year later I was interested in going and he offered me a principal contract and I thought, well, here's an opportunity to learn something more. And so I went to America and Lee was my partner. So that was wonderful, yeah. I love how you describe the the love story between you and Lee in the book and there's a particular passage which I'll read where you say that the chemistry between us lingered beyond the stage. To be honest, my connection to him was instant and I had the impression it was the same for him. Of course, though, you were both sort of um, disentangling yourselves from separate relationships when you first met. <laughs> yeah, and also we um, we really didn't want to transfer our magical partnership on stage into real life because it's hard to find, just like real life, it's hard to find a soulmate, but it's very diff- difficult in a partnership as well because you have to have height, you have to have age, you have to have experience, you have to have musicality, you know, that's a, it's a lot of... And to find a, a really good partner is um, is like needle in a haystack. So, But then when you mess around with it and have a relationship as well, it can make things very difficult in the studio because you're living and working all the time. But we seem to manage that, so I'm not sure why. We're very different people, but it's we seem to be a better team. Um, and I think that's one of the crucial messages to get through life, but Two is better than one. It was also a little bit taboo then for two company dancers to be involved with each other, so you almost had to keep it a bit of a secret for a while. That's right. That's right because directors get very panicked and think if one is unhappy and the other one, then the other one becomes unhappy and it all becomes quite complicated. I'd love to know when you were dancing on stage, uh, what did it feel like? What Describe for us that moment of the lights being on, you're in those incredible costumes, um, you've got the makeup on, uh, the music starts. What's it like? Well, it depends. It depends very much on the ballet that you're, you're doing. But if it's a major work like Swan Lake, you would have been building up for it for weeks, weeks and weeks. And really the more you can never be prepared enough. 
So there's always sort of anxiety but also excitement and um, and things seem to go very, very, very fast. And often at the end of the ballet you think, oh, I could do that all over again, <laughs> much better. <laughs> um, but if you have a partner with you um, that you can rely on, then that seems to come together and then you just sort of float through the performance. And also if you have a great conductor, there's so many, it looks so easy, but there's so many elements that, and so much teamwork that goes into a performance, you know, from the stage manager, you know, being very encouraging, the conductor, uh, your team around you, your partner, spacing, everything. So um, it's a it's a triumph when any show goes on because of the teamwork. And it's so physically demanding. Were there times when you would have to execute something particularly difficult where you were, you know, concerned that you wouldn't be able to pull it off? Uh, yes, often. Uh, <laughs> Don Q is one I can remember going on and doing 32 for days and thinking, oh, my God, I think I'm going to be sick, but no, and, and Swan Lake too, Black Swan. I mean, they're just killers. But because you have practised them, you know that you can get through them. So that's all there is to it. You, you, you just know. And then, then you manage like the boys, we're doing Albrecht at the moment and there's those 32 ceases at the end. They're like, but I'm dying. And we're like, we know. Mm. We know exactly that. But you, you will get through it. We know you will. Just practice and you will. And they're like, but I can't feel my legs. I, we're like, we know. <laughs> so, I mean, they're all very different. It just depends. Um, you know, the big, the big Swan Lakes and Seeping Beauties, they're very full on but really satisfying. And, of course, when you work on them, you just develop so much. What was the role that you coveted the most and did you get to achieve that? Yeah, I suppose um, Juliet because that was Rudolph's Romeo and Juliet and we did that all over the world and I was one of the peasants. So I watched him every time he did it, he and um, Patricia Rowan. So I sort of knew the death scene inside out. So the time I did it, when I was about 28 or 29, I think, I just knew it inside out. I felt she was my skin and... Um, and, of course, Giselle was very challenging as well. That was a major ballet. And Swan Lake was one of the first large ballets I did at 23 in London at the Coliseum. Wow, absolutely extraordinary. So let's fast forward a bit now to 1989 when you were pregnant with Sophie, your beautiful daughter, who I can't believe is 31. She, in all the photos that I've seen of her, she looks so youthful. Uh, so she's born and um, you describe her as just being 
the most perfect child, you know, so angelic and beautiful. Um, she gets to 16 months. She's meeting all the milestones and Lee, your husband, takes her to a party and there's an incident with a balloon. Would you like to, to tell the rest of that story? Yeah, actually, we were here in, um, in Australia. Um, I had been invited to dance with the Australian Ballet and Lee danced with me as well and also in Queensland for the 30 years of the Queensland Ballet. And we brought Sophie with us so that she could be introduced to my family. And at the end of the shows, we're in Queensland having a little barbecue at home and Lee came up the stairs and said, Mary, a balloon popped and Sophie didn't move. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, well, all the other children startled and she didn't move. I said, well, that's okay. I don't know. Maybe she was distracted by something else. So I really didn't think anything of it, but I think he was a little bit suspicious. So we, when we went back to America, we went to the pediatrician and demanded that she, he do a hearing test, not thinking that anything would be wrong with our beautiful child because I didn't think deafness because deaf children make sounds. They go ba, 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 ma, 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 um, but they're mimicking. So um, the ABR and this doctor in a white coat walked into the room as we were watching her wake up and said she's profoundly deaf. And so we're looking at our beautiful daughter thinking we went in with one child and we came out with a, a different life basically. Yeah, you, you write in your book, we had walked into that hospital with our little girl and a very special life, but Lee and I knew everything had changed in an instant. That was it. There was no way for us to communicate with Sophie. And then you go on to say, I was struck by all the things Sophie would never hear. My heart broke for you when I read that. Yeah, it was a sad moment because you think, oh, well, we've been saying I love you and all kinds of things. And you think, it was just blank. She didn't hear any of it. So that was uh, very sad. And also, you know, I realised she had to find a form of communication. And for us at that time, it was, oh, there were just so many things going through my head. And Lee's um, family was Chinese and mine was Australian. So, you know, I definitely... You know, I, I definitely wanted her to speak. I didn't know how that would happen. I hadn't even met a deaf child before I had my own. So it was a brand new world. And um, I had to, I decided we went on a tour to Canada and that's why I called it Mary's Last Dance because as I was coming down the corner with a group of dancers doing the last uh, section of the ballet, I knew I had to, um, I knew I would be giving it up to be with my child because I couldn't leave her uncommunicating. And um, so I, I left the ballet and walked into this new deaf world and um, put hearing aids on and... and um, tried to teach her to speak for two years and then I was encouraged by a auditory verbal therapist to have an implant which I was terrified of and there was no research at that time and there was no internet or Google so you couldn't find any information either um, 
but I just felt I just felt that we you know if if we could get her a channel to hear then I could teach her language and I'm glad I thought like that um and she both speaks beautifully now and signs so and she does a little bit of Chinese as well so it was a long journey for both her and me, and I think any child with differences, it's it's an extra effort on the parents. But um, beautiful outcome for Sophie, and uh, there we are. She's a very successful 31-year-old. Now, you said that, that this is the book that you wish had been available when you first discovered that Sophie was deaf. And in fact, um, you know, your husband has famously written Mal's Last Dancer, which has been turned into a film. And there was huge demand when that came out for, well, what's the next chapter? And um, you've been asked numerous times to to kind of complete that chapter and write your own story. But it wasn't until recently that you... I guess, felt comfortable in sharing Sophie's story as well because it's so intertwined with what happened next. Um, talk us through that process. Yeah, well, I would never – lots of people asked me after Lee's um, story and I had no intention of telling my story. Also, I was too busy. I had three children and Sophie had extra needs So I and I had seen the amount of effort my husband put into writing a book and I just – definitely didn't have the time and also I didn't want to tell my story without Sophie wanting to tell it and it was only when she said mum you have to write it because it's going to help so many people so a lot of her deaf friends are very um, excited about the book and it's nice to talk about beautiful deaf people we never do you know, mm. and they're very successful fabulous people and there's nothing no one writes about no one you know it's marvellous to talk about them. You write so beautifully at the end. You say that um, Sophie's deafness has taught me and our whole family so much humility and gratitude. She made us better and more compassionate human beings. Yeah, I think so. And um, I'm not a very patient person, but I, I, I certainly had to learn it. And Sophie had to be very patient too. It was not a journey that I thought I would go on. So life has very many, many unexpected turns. It really does. And one of the beautiful turns is that you were able to re-enter the world of ballet again. Uh, that must have felt like coming home. Oh, it was, oh amazing. I did, I did keep up my teaching when I came to Australia. I just taught not young children but like um, – pre-professional students and also Lee allowed me to coach him all the way through so I kept my eye on it until I got a job with the Australian Ballet uh, Company but I so I taught part-time for them when they were in Melbourne so that was wonderful and then when the Lee got the job here he needed me to coach the principals which you know is my ideal job so I, I, I love teaching and um, I love coaching and so I just seem to be in the perfect position. I just, yeah, I think maybe that was meant to be. Yeah, it's always looking back, isn't it, that you can join those dots and see how life is a funny way of turning out. 
Oh, the older I get, I think I think definitely. I like um, the book came because Sophie was on her way to Shanghai, and the visa was sort of very slow coming because of a mix-up of Melbourne address and Brisbane address. So she was sort of looking for something to do as well. So because without her um, and the effort she put in, because I, I wrote everything freehand and then she typed it all up. So that was, you know, amazing effort because I wouldn't have been able to do that. I would love to know, given this is a podcast about confidence, given you've coached so many principal dancers and you've been one yourself, what kind of confidence do you need to step into to be that prima ballerina, that that principal dancer? Is it a different kind of energy? I think confidence comes uh, for me really um, through work and through persistence. So I think the more you work at something, truly the more you get and even if you don't get or you're not the best or something you will get something out of it and small things lead to other things bigger things so I just think effort daily is confidence boosting and the uh, different dancers that you've coached do you do you see like is there a bit of an X factor with the people that you you keep your eye on and you think yes they've got that certain something that they're able to play the or, or the the lead in a different ballet you can see the people who've got it and the people who perhaps don't have that little X factor. Well, not everybody is going to get the principal role because there's only one. And I think dancers, they're, they're open to criticism every day. They are just open books. So I think dancers actually become great, great, great people because they take criticism and they come back every day to try to improve all the time and even if they don't get the part. But sometimes they might get a bigger part and um, you sort of never know what's around the corner. So that's why, and I think you you always get satisfaction from effort. I had to laugh. I read an interview that Sophie did where she spoke about, you know, how disciplined you are and she said, mum's just like a tornado and, for example, if we decide we want to go and see a movie, mum has to go and see the movie right that second. <laughs> We're quite different personalities. She's very like my mother, I think, very genteel and she loves, you know, tapestry and beautiful things and she's very good in the home and um, she's very neat and tidy and people think you teach people that you don't because I am a mess and she's immaculate and so I don't know where she got that from. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, all right, we've got four questions that we finish on at the end of each episode. And the yeah. first one would be what would be, uh, and I guess you have seen Sophie go on her own confidence journey throughout the years, as have you navigating a world that you never thought you would be in. What would be your number one confidence tip? I think really positivity, getting up each day and working to be the best that you can. Be as positive as you can. There's always a way to look on the positive side and that can help you too. And the other one obviously is effort. Yes. 
Is there a book that you've read uh, apart from yours and your husband's or an inspirational quote that's helped you on your way in your confidence journey? I've, I've read so much. I think I've just, I just think any book, any book is a great. I read a lot of Australian books too. I read um, Cloud Street. That was a marvellous book. What a writer, Australian writer. Yeah, I love that book as well. Um, we'll link to that in the show notes. I tried to read um, an author in every country that I went to so that I really began to understand the culture of different countries. I read a great deal. I read Life and Death in Shanghai when Lee took me to China, Lonesome Dove when I went to Texas, Dickens when I went to England, you know, Angel's Ashes when I went to Ireland, you know, Mary Queen of Scots. So, I mean, reading is just, yes, there's inspiration in any book really. God, I love that. That's such a good approach. Um, What do you do for pure joy, something that has no outcome attached to it? Oh, I just love being with my family and eating my husband's dumplings. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes on a Sunday he'll just go, I'm just going to, because it reminds him of his mother. And we go, that's great, darling. Yes. And we won't <laughs> tell anyone, just us. Then you have to share. So we just get them all to ourselves. Oh, my gosh. Well, the secret's out now. I love dumplings, oh, I especially and homemade smell, ones. You can smell them. He makes the pastry as well. Oh, my goodness. So we just think that's the best day ever. Yeah, what a treat. And finally, what are you working on right now in your confidence journey to take you to where you next want to be in life? Because, of course, confidence is um, a journey, not a destination. Oh, Katrina, I'm just working on savouring the moments because moments are just so special. Like the moment I had um, Lee and Sophie and the last read through of the book, we all sat together to edit the, you know, finish, just check any corrections or anything we had. And the joy of that, having my daughter, who would have thought that she would be there correcting a sentence or a capital letter or a full stop or a, um, I mean, that I just, I will never forget that image because to go from there to there. So I'm just, I'm just enjoying now. I'm enjoying, you know, my dance is going to go on stage next week. Everybody's been locked down with COVID, the joy of that. So I'm savouring that and trying to share. I think you have achieved such a milestone in getting this book out into the world and helping so many other people, so many other families in the process and giving a voice to, as you said, a topic that just hadn't really been covered in the mainstream that much. So well done. And um, I, I just think it's absolutely beautiful that you got to share this in such an intimate way with Sophie. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's amazing. I, I, I don't know, I, but I somehow think it was meant to be. Stay 
Stay connected by following Claiming Your Confidence or me, Katrina Blowers, on Instagram. For more information on this or other episodes, head to katrinablowers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and make sure you share it with anyone you think would benefit from a confidence pick-me-up. Claiming Your Confidence is created and produced by me, Katrina Blowers. Audio thanks to Term 6 Podcast Productions. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence.